You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. Today's episode shares an interview Tom had with Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern New Hampshire University. Tom, tell me a little bit more about Paul and the conversation you had with him. Southern New Hampshire University, under uh, Paul LeBlanc's leadership, has turned into one of the most important innovators in higher education in the world. Paul took over uh, Southern New Hampshire in 2003. They had 2,500 students, and today they have over 80,000 students. It's the second largest nonprofit uh, online provider in the world. And as impressive as this is as a scale story, uh, Paul's also turned the uh, Manchester, New Hampshire campus into an innovation factory. They developed a program called College for America, It's a business partnership program, and instructionally, it's a project-based program uh, that's also competency-based. That means uh, people uh, do projects, and they can go as fast or as slow as they want. If you're prepared, you can move through the program very quickly, but there's also uh, a slow lane for people that need more academic support. So it's a very innovative model because of the partnership, uh, the projects, the competency-based mechanism, um, and it's helped Southern New Hampshire turn into uh, the innovative program that it is today. Thanks, Tom. So let's take a minute to listen in to what you and Paul had to talk about and learn a little bit more about how this New Hampshire college became a leading online university. Paul LeBlanc, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. It's great to be with you, Tom. Paul, Southern New Hampshire University is now, uh, we we would consider one of the three or four most important innovators in in all of higher education. How did uh, a sleepy college in Manchester become uh, one of America's leading online universities? (laughs) Well, it's kind of you to put it that way. So I've been here 14 years, though, and I came here in 2003. It was, you know, I think I, I teach a program for new first-time presidents, and I always say to them, you're your institution's greatest cheerleader externally, but internally you have to be the most hard-nosed analyst. And when I came in, the analogy often uses, you know, it's it's like being dealt a hand in poker, so you play your best cards. And you're right, you know, we were pretty well unknown. Um, we were a small, mostly campus-based institution, and um, but we had this great little online program that was chugging away. It was in a kind of nondescript corner of the campus. No one was paying too much attention to it, and it was, you know, in 2003, a time when um, most of not-for-profit higher ed had looked down its nose at distance education, as it was often called then. And in that vacuum, the for-profits had come in and had incredible growth. So Phoenix, Kaplan, ITT, uh, DeVry, all of these people, just so you know, they own the space. They were really much more thoughtful about what adult learners needed than most of nonprofit higher ed at the time. And I thought, you know, what would it take for us to compete against them? And really, when we asked that question, we did not think of our competition as other nonprofits because there were so few. Uh, there were some, Drexel, UMUC, some of the early innovators in that space, but the, but the big competition was for-profits. So we set out to 
uh, study um, what it would take to serve adult learners. And, and I will sort of evoke Clay Christensen's jobs to be done theory here, which is knowing very precisely what people are asking of you. And the answer we came up with were four C's, if you will. So one was people wanted convenience. So uh, busy adults juggling family and work, um, trying to squeeze us into busy lives, um, really, you know, struggling to get to classes on a campus, maybe, you know, driving through a fast food line, and if they're lucky, getting home before their kids were in bed, when, you know, what we saw was that people were voting with their feet. They were going to online programs where they could have dinner with the family, put the dishes away, help the kids with homework, tuck them into bed, and at 9.30 at night, make a cup of tea, and now they were students. That wasn't possible in community college, traditional continuing education classes. The second C was they needed out low cost. So cost is the second consideration. Third is a credential, something that would help them improve their lives. Most of them are doing this very hard thing. I'm going to go back in and in my already too busy life, I'm going to try to squeeze an education. So there, had, there was urgency and they needed a credential that usually meant a better job and better pay and better able to take care of their families. Um, and then the last was uh, completion time. Usually students in the situation are feeling urgent. They need to get to that finish line faster. So what are the ways that we could make that happen? So, so a lot of people came to know us when we started to grow, which was really around 2010. But I would say that in the five years before that, there was a lot of hard work under the hood, getting our systems in the right place, getting the right people. Um, at one point, we did a kind of cradle-to-grave analysis of the steps it took for a student to go from enrolling to graduation. And that schematic looked like a nuclear sub. The things that we asked students to do, a schematic from a nuclear sub, the things we asked students to do, all of the steps, all of the bureaucracy. And um, I think we learned some lessons that for as maligned as the for-profit sector is, they were much better at um, streamlining processes, customer service, which is a phrase most institutions can't even use today still, um, and really removing needless barriers um, to students being able to enroll and proceed with their, with their degree. So, so after all of that hard work under the hood, we set out to build a national brand and that's a big ambitious thing to do. We did some test marketing in places like Milwaukee and Oklahoma City, um, and a number of other television markets. And the question we asked was, could we compete in markets where there was a big for-profit presence, not a lot of nonprofit online, and where our brand was virtually unknown? And in 2009, our brand was virtually unknown everywhere outside of New Hampshire. But we did some test marketing for a period of 10 weeks, and what we found was, wow, people really do want to know more. They you know, we were generating leads. They were, they were asking for more information. And then the recession hit very hard. And we were caught flat-footed on our traditional program. We did not adjust financial aid quick enough, and we were looking at a budget deficit. We had planned to do that test marketing for a year, but with only 10 weeks under our belt, we went to our board and said, we have some early successes. We really hope to do this for a lot longer. But given the pressures the institution's under, we think we should um, put some money into marketing ourselves outside of New Hampshire. And they gave us the green light. If we had gotten it wrong, our deficit would have been deeper that year. And I probably would be doing something different for work. But instead, we had really early and great success. In January, we went back and said, this is going so well. We would like to double our marketing spend. And it continued to go well. And we ended the year with a substantial surplus. And then we never looked back. Um, 
So there are lots of other things in that story. Um, for example, I think a lot of schools do something that feels very commonsensical when they enter online uh, in the online market, which is they try it with one program and they kind of see what the results will be before they make a big investment. So that sounds rational, right? I think we went out with 24. And our argument was the marketing cost and the cost of acquisition is so high that unless you amortize across many programs, your financial results will never be successful. It will never look like a good idea. And and I think a lot of pilot programs flounder. So it's just a, there are a whole bunch of dynamics. We had good luck. Um, we were at it, we entered the online space at a time when Senator Harkin had the for-profit squarely in his gun sites, and the Obama administration came in with a similar sort of. Um, critique of the for-profit sector. So our for-profit competition was sort of back on their heels. Not-for-profits hadn't come in. Um, during a down economy, think about 2010, 2011, as you know, adult enrollments are counter-cyclical. So there were a lot of adults looking to go back to school at that time to retool. So all of those things came together um, and, and we started to grow very fast. So in 2012, we were the 50th of the 50 largest not-for-profit online providers. And three years later, we were number four. And honestly, Tom, we almost blew the thing up more than once. We we got ahead of our systems. We got ahead of our HR. So we've learned the hard way how to scale. Uh, so we've talked about some of the, the key strategic variables of being convenient, um, affordable, being able to complete faster. Uh, but online learning has gotten such a bad rap, uh, often because of the, some of the for-profits that we've talked about. What have you learned specifically about the student learning experience that makes online a, a pretty good way to go to school? Sure. So 10 years ago, I would argue that um, online was not nearly as good as traditionally delivered education. But if you're familiar with Clay's, Clay Christensen, who was on my board for a long time, if you're familiar with his disruptive uh, innovation curves, at some point, the disruptive thing, which isn't as good in the beginning, actually gets better. I would argue today the best online, and there's lots of bad online out there, but the best online is better than most face-to-face. -face. And the reason is that we've been able to think and, and, and understand how to do high-quality course development. We have platforms that give us much better optics into the student learning. We have data analytics that allow us to do not just good monitoring of student progress, but predictive analytics. We, we, we have a predictive analytics score for every single new student before he or she starts. Um, we can wrap more services around a student that we think is higher risk. We um, rally incredible advising and student success support fueled by a very powerful CRM. So when an advisor logs in in the morning, every student in his or her caseload who is off track in some way is highlighted and there's a course of action. So we don't wait for students to struggle. We're very proactive. I think all of those things come together to make well-designed, high-quality online programs really very strong. The secret sauce for us, however, is not the platform. Platforms are important, but no one, and I would argue, uh, enrolls in a program or leaves a program because of the learning platform. Um, and we build strong academic programs. I think in all of higher ed, students are incredibly patient with um, academic programs that are varying quality. Um, I like to think we do good quality. I think our secret sauce, the thing we do really, really well is student support, student coaching. Because what we find with our adult learners, and that's primarily who is in the online environment, 
is that, sure, many of them come rusty in terms of their academic skills. They've got to get a couple of papers under their belt. They've got to get reacquainted with math that they haven't thought about in a long time. But the real impediments to their success is not their ability, their academic ability in the end. It's mostly sort of life getting in the way. It's confidence. It's, it's they got too much on their plate. It's, you know, if they haven't been in school in 10 years and they get that first assignment back and the grade's not very good, for a lot of them, the first reaction is, see, I knew this was a dumb idea. I wasn't a good college student the first time 10 years ago, and I'm still not a good college student. And it's really our job to get them through that early transition to build confidence, to give them the kind of, you know, study skills, um, really simple pragmatic things like scheduling become really important with people with, for people with too little time. So I think um, we've learned a lot about this and about the online environment. And it really comes down to that for all the technology we throw at it, it's really the human factors that are the drivers of student success. And the technology can be incredibly powerful in amplifying that human factor. Uh, dive into the uh, program, and you, you may want to pick one or two uh, to talk about specifically. Are these um, synchronous courses uh, uh, taught at scheduled periods, or do students enroll at any time? And how important are cohorts? Are, is collaborative learning any part of this? So, you know, it's a fair bit of research that will tell you that putting students in cohorts improves persistence in, in graduation. Um, I'm going to go back to the four C's again, right? So if you think that those, if convenience is one of the most important factors in online programming, then um, synchronous courses uh, are problematic because the issue that students have is schedule and juggling schedule and being where they need to be. So we're pretty dedicated to remaining asynchronous, which is not to say that faculty don't make themselves available for, you know, conferences, uh, you know, I'm going to be on a Wednesday night from 7 to 8.30 for anybody who wants to jump in and talk more about X, Y, or Z. So there's some of that, but our co courses are fundamentally structured as asynchronous because convenience is such an important factor. And we don't, as a result, all, for the same reasons, we don't tend to use a cohort model. That, that said, um, many of our courses require students to work in teams and develop that, you know, some of those uh, what some people call soft skills that are so important to employers. But but our courses don't. We we really try to avoid um, anything that compromises. Um, the convenience factor, which is so important to our students. And and I could make a good argument for doing otherwise, right? I, I, I think for some students, they would do better if they were in cohorts. And for some students, might really enjoy a, a synchronous class schedule, but it would do too much of a disservice to the great bulk of our students. A couple of years ago, you launched uh, one of my uh, favorite higher ed programs. It's called College for America. It's a, a competency-based, project-based program. What, what's the backstory to this uh, program that you've been selling uh, business to business? When we think about College for America, it probably exemplifies the last sentence in our vision statement, which is uh, we relentlessly challenge the status quo. And we were thinking about how can we find new, more affordable pathways to a college degree that not only don't take away from quality, but could actually provide more quality, right? So that's kind of the holy grail, right? I can, it's the triad of completion, access, and quality. So could we 
um, get access to more people who need education, offer higher quality, and have better results in terms of the percentage of people who make it to the finish line. And we started playing with the idea of unbundling. Like, what happens when you start to pull apart the things that feel so integral to traditionally delivered degrees? And I was on a long, long plane trip from Malaysia. And I wrote a white paper, as I sometimes do with my team, a kind of thinking piece. And it was called The Next the Next Big Thing, question mark. In fact, the, the Chronicle published it some years ago when they did an early story when we were just starting College for America. And at that time, it was called Pathways. The Pathways program was kind of the prototype name. And it envisioned uh, a program that um, would allow students to leverage the social capital of the workplace of their community. So the idea that classrooms aren't the only place where you can learn. It was built around the idea of working adults who are often the lowest paid within their organization. So frontline workers, you know, um, non-clinical office work, uh, orderlies in hospitals, factory workers. It, um, it imagined the ability to go as slow or fast as you need, and it started to articulate this notion of competencies. And um, soon thereafter, as we were talking about how could you pull this thing together, I mean, it was very, very sort of you know ill-defined. We uh, learned that there was a clause in Title IV that said, in um, as an alternative to the credit hour, uh, institutions could disperse financial aid on the basis of quote direct assessment of student learning, end quote. And no one had used this language, the the lore at least, and I believe this is true, that it was written for Western governors and they never used it. They stayed they stayed connected to courses and credit hours. So we we started thinking about wow, what happens if you uncouple the credit hour from learning? And the credit hour you know is never been designed to measure student learning. It's not very good at it. It's pretty good at telling you how long someone sat, but it doesn't tell you what they actually learned. It's also kind of a proxy for a, a, a unit of learning, a certain amount of learning, not how well you did it, but kind of a, how, how much of it you had. But it's very poorly defined. So that's really led us, that was the key breakthrough. Like, you know, if we were to instead start thinking about competencies and you could go as fast or as slow as you wanted, time doesn't matter. Um, and if those could be sort of, you know, weighted so we'd understand how many competencies is equivalent to an associate's degree, is equivalent to a, a bachelor's degree, we could really radically re redesign what we do. So that led to the creation of what was first Pathways and then later became um, College for America. And we were uh, that program was first approved by NEASC, so it was the first program of its kind to be approved by a regional creditor and then soon thereafter uh, by the U.S. Department of Ed. And employers love it because it gives us a lingua franca, right? I mean, they think about the world in terms of what their employees can do and can't do, what they need to be able to do. We don't talk that language, but now all of a sudden we had a program that talks about competencies. It's the same language. What can people do? What can they do with what they know? And we were able, um, by unbundling and, and sort of really rethinking how we deliver the program, to radically drive down the cost so that it's only $1,500 every six months, an all-you-can-eat model. And students progress through the program by demonstrating competency through the completion of really authentic assessments, real-world projects. So some students could, for example, demonstrate mastery of the math competencies in a matter of weeks. 
And why would we make them sit through, you know, eight more weeks of math class if they could do it then? On the other hand, if a student takes two years to master the writing competencies, why would we think one semester of college freshman writing would suffice with a C grade? So the other thing that employers love about it is not just the clarity of the competencies, and how we articulate those, but the fact that mastery is key. So no one gets to slide by with a C in math, right? You either master, you have mastery, or you don't. So we are able to stand behind the claims of our graduates in the ways that many programs don't or can't. And um, it was funded initially with a million dollars of uh, a Gates Foundation grant. Um, and part of that deal was that we would do an external assessment when we had enough students at the associates level or 60 credits so that was done a couple of years ago when we finally had a critical mass of students making their way through the program those students were administered the ets proficiency exam they were uh, evaluated against 7,000 of their peers at 21 other colleges, and they outperformed their peers, in many cases by a wide margin, in six out of the seven categories. So really stunning performance. We have since rolled it out to um, community partners, to charter schools in Boston and LA and Providence, Rhode Island, who are working with incredibly marginalized populations. You know, we've rolled it out now in our third year in a refugee camp in Rwanda and just received $10 million of funding to scale it to four more refugee camps in Lebanon, Kenya, and South Africa, and Malawi. So we're pretty excited about it. The results have been great. We had uh, similar results with the program uh, with our refugee students in Rwanda, where they are outperforming their counterparts in the Rwandan university system by a wide margin on a nationally administered exam, um, and 93%. And these are people in one of the most destitute refugee camps in the world are getting jobs as soon as they finish the degree. So, um, yeah, that's, it's, it's really one of the things of which we are most proud. If you're enjoying this conversation, we'd recommend listening to our podcast with Ben Nelson, the founder of Minerva, the most selective college in the world and perhaps the most innovative college. You can find this track in season two, episode 45. Now let's get back to Tom's conversation with Paul. It's, a, it's an exciting program. Uh, do you see more high schools uh, partnering with College for America and, and using this extensively as a dual enrollment or early college strategy? Yeah, we do. So um, we're actually ramping up um, our K-12 work now, and we um, were, we were named as one of the partners in one of the um, super school uh, prizes. So we're working right. with Rise High in L.A. The Rise High focuses on bringing high school education out to students who are either homeless or have timed out of the foster care system. And uh, College for America is the college completion pathway for those students in that case. At um, the Met School in Providence, one of my favorite high schools, last May we had our first student walk across the stage and with the same handshake received a high school diploma and an associate's degree. Um, so I think um, we think there is enormous play uh, at the high school level, both dual enrollment or early college programming. And uh, the Match Beyond is one of our favorite partners uh, in downtown Boston. They're having amazing success. We have written about all of those. So we're, we're excited about that development, too. Well, along the way, you developed your own platform. You tried a couple different platforms and decided uh, to, to build your own. The platform became known as as Motivus, uh, tell us about the decision to build and then 
how you spun that out. So we tried um, a couple of existing LMSs, won't name them, but they, they really weren't very well built for the kind of fluidity that our program demands. Students going in and out, some going fast, some going slow, starting at different times, incompetencies instead of credit hours. So we decided we had to build our own. We did it based on Salesforce platform because it gave us really good underlying data analytics, robust data. Um, so we had so many schools visiting to learn more about what we were doing, and any number of them asked if they could license our program. And we had never really built it for that purpose, but we thought that there might be – so there appeared to be an emerging need and an, a really great opportunity for us. So we spun it off as a standalone, separate, um, for-profit Sub, um, subsidiary of SNHU, so it's a standalone with its own board, and we provided the first round of funding, um, and they have, I think they're up to about 35 or 40 employees now, they're um, rolling out to a number of schools, interestingly K-12 as well as the college level, and we just last month confirmed a second round of funding for them, so they now have funding to take them out another 12 months. Um, so we're pretty excited about what they're building. Uh, the response has been great. We, of course, use it here as well. Um, our school of business, actually, even in our traditional program, uh, just today was talking about how they want to use it. So we're feeling pretty good about it. It's early. Um, so I think, you know, they, they've moved beyond um, the sort of uh, MPV stage, um, MVP stage, excuse me, the sort of minimum viable product. And, and there are features that people still want, and they're working on those, but they're kind of where we would hope they'd be at this point as a startup. And they also now do a non-Salesforce version, because not every school out there is, is using the Salesforce platform, though more and more are. And, you know, I think when you're looking at direct assessment and competency-based programs, the traditional LMS world is still trying to catch up. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of them make claims about being able to do CBE. Not sure those claims hold up so well to examination all the time. Uh, Paul, did that experience inspire the fifteen million dollar seed fund created with Rethink? I don't know if it inspired it, Tom, but I think you know when we created this fund with Rethink, it was coming from a conversation where we were looking at our endowment, and you know every endowment has some portion in somewhat higher risk investments. But at the end of the day, they still are only investments, so they either yield return or they don't. And the question we asked was, could we make investments that provide some other benefit to us, that give us other advantages beyond whatever return they might give us? And that led to the idea of what if we could uh, invest in very, very early stage ed tech startups where very smart young entrepreneurs were working on problems that are interesting to us? Well, why, what advantage would we have from that? And the, and the answer was that we would get sort of, you know, strategic optics into solutions one, two, and three years before they hit the mass market. And that that's a competitive advantage, but it would also make us smarter. It would expand our thinking. You know, when we come across somebody who's thinking, they're building a solution looks very different than what we would have done. This looks really interesting. Um, could we use it? So we approached Rethink and proposed this idea, and they loved it because it's sort of a gap in the investment market, right? These are $250,000 to $1 million, so more than people can continue to put on their credit card, but less than a lot of VC firms are interested in. So let's just get in early. We love the first investments we've made. Um, they're fascinating. We get to work with those entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, Rethink brings its investment expertise, and SNHU brings the kind of pressure test of the actual market. 
So we get to kick the tires on things, on solutions, and say, you know what? This is kind of neat, but this is not something we'd ever use, and this is why. Or we get to say, wow, not ready for prime time yet, but when they get to where they need to be, this would be something we would be really interested in. We, we would be a potential customer. So that's a, that's a very useful kind of input for Rethink as they look at these investments. Right. No, it's very exciting. Uh, Matt Greenfield and I uh, wrote a paper five years ago called Boosting Impact and made the case that endowments should be investing in at tech venture funds for all the reasons that you've described. And it's been exciting to see you and many of the National Education Foundations uh, f- following suit. Yeah, we're certainly not alone in this. And there's, as you say, people like Strata and Loom and others have also been sort of very active in these spaces, often through a rethink or your team. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's important. And it, we really were seeing the benefits already. So let's uh, wrap up by talking about Building a culture of innovation in the nonprofit sector, what what would you say that you've learned over the last dozen years about innovating in uh, the NGO space? So I think um, I think there is a discipline to innovation that is not often um, widely understood. So let me let me let me say it this way: I think innovation at many institutions is trying a lot of stuff. It's kind of the throw spaghetti on the wall approach. And in fact, I think you do need to throw a lot of, try a lot of things. I think you, you, you want to sort of be playing in a lot of spaces to understand them and see where opportunity lies. But I think if you look at somebody like who's, you know, Clay Christensen, who was extremely influential in my world, he's an old friend. I like to say I knew him before he was famous. He was on our board and is trustee emeritus. There's sort of a playbook in there, right? So there is discipline around understanding the job you're trying to do. That's a kind of a strategic customer focus, customer centric way of thinking about the world. Um, there is a discipline around understanding what kind of innovation you're creating. Is it an innovation that allows you to do what you've always done but better? Is it an innovation that allows you to do what you've always done but more efficiently or cheaply? Or is it an innovation that really changes the rules of the game? So CFA would be an example of an innovation that changes the rules of the game. Um, I think the state of modern libraries on campuses is an example of an innovation that allows you to do what you've done, but much better, right? So even a little rural school can have access to untold resources now. They don't have to build collections in the way they once did. So understanding what kind of innovation. Understanding that each of those requires a different set of operational moves. So if you're doing truly disruptive innovation, you probably want to keep it at arm's length. You want to keep it outside of the mainstream organization because as Clay's work shows us, um, those kinds of innovations are seen as foreign tissue and the, the organizational dynamics to kind of want to pull it back in and either close it down or make it in, in its own image. So we get pretty disciplined about what kind of innovation and then what kind of moves do we need to build around it. Innovation is a lot easier if you are, as you, I think you described us, a kind of sleepy little college that no one knows about. I think the great impediments to genuine innovation are status and money. So if you're a well-regarded blue-chip institution with a billion-dollar endowment, Um, and long tradition and status, very hard to innovate in that world. In fact, the only way that many of those schools can innovate is if they do it sort of at extreme arm's length. So edX could not be created inside MIT or inside Harvard. It had to be outside of both of those where MIT and Harvard were the investors. 
Um, I think if you look at some of the successful online programs, UMUC, for example, it was built as a standalone in the system, but outside of any institution. Contrast that with the University of Florida system, um, where the Florida system, where they let the flagship university own the project, and then it was it was failed within a year. Um, so I think you know there there are disciplines around this. I think one of the disciplines around genuinely innovative uh, solutions is that you you first find a market that's underserved, um, where the next best alternative is nothing at all. Um, so there's just lots of those pieces, but I think you. Um, if you are an institution that's neither wealthy or high status, there is a hunger to be better, to do something different. So in 2003, when I came here during the search process, every stakeholder group with whom I met said, we want to get to the next level. Now, they all might have defined the next level differently, and they might disagree with where we've come today, but there was a hunger to change. And I think that's that's a critical piece. I also think that um, the world is moving faster and in a more volatile way than it ever has before. And I think that external condition drives institutions to get better at this. Everyone's going to have to be more innovative. If you build rigid organizations today in what the Institutes for the Future call a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, if you build rigid institutions that can't be flexible and fluid and changeable, i.e. innovative, uh, boy, you are much, much more vulnerable than you would have been in higher ed 20 years ago, for example. Are there any personal practices that feed your innovation mindset? Um, I try to read much more outside of higher ed than inside of higher ed. Um, I think uh, that doesn't mean I don't read the Chronicle inside higher ed. And, you know, I got Derek Box, uh, the struggle to reform our colleges sitting in front of me on my desk. So I don't mean to be a sort of know nothing about higher ed. But the reality is most of us who are paying attention probably have a pretty good feel for what's going on and what the issues are in higher education. I learned a lot from looking at healthcare, for example, which I think is an analogous industry, right? Complex, re highly regulated industry, third-party payer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, try to, so, you know, trying to read outside of, trying to pay attention outside of the industries we're in. Um, I really, really like the practice that the Institutes for the Future talk about, which is looking for artifacts from the future. And that, it's a really funny phrase, but their notion is that what are the things around us today, and they may not even be successful as businesses, but what are the things today that foretell some kind of future state? And I'll give you just a very quick example of this. Back in 1993, 92, I was principal investigator on a big grant with Apple. And while I was out in Cupertino one day, they very excitedly said, hey, we want to show you the prototype of this really cool new product, and we think this is going to be our next big thing. And it was the Apple Newton. And I don't know if you remember the Newton, but it was a fairly large handheld device. You kind of flipped open the lid, and its breakthrough is it had hand handwriting recognition and uh, you know you could put your calendar in there and you could keep your your contacts etc well if you remember the Newton was a complete flop and if you looked at it and said what do I take from this one might have concluded nothing but if you looked at it and said despite its failures it foretells a different kind of future of handheld devices that hold a lot of information that allow you to write and of course the next iteration 
of that of that sort of direction was the Palm Pilot, which was hugely successful. And now today, your Android or iPhone, right? And think about the sort of power of that small device. It was foretold by the Newton. They were on the right track. They just didn't have the right product at the right time, sort of, you know, with the right functionality. So we spent a lot of time thinking about that. And some of the things we might look at today would certainly be gameplay, um, platforms like Twitch, where gamers look at other gamers and operate in this collaborative environment. I mean, is that a, might that be a paradigm of the learning environment of the future? Um, we certainly look a lot at machine learning and AI. So there are a lot of things that are happening today that I think are foretell the kinds of bets we're trying to make for the future. So this year we did the first view book to college students that had augmented reality. So you could download the app, open up, the, so you could treat the view book as a paper view book, but if you had the app, you could hold it over and see video, 3D renderings, slideshows, all kinds of cool stuff. Those are sort of little experiments, right, with, with what the future looks like. So um, yeah, those, those are the kinds of things we, we try to do, that I try to do. Uh, Paul LeBlanc, Southern New Hampshire University. It's been a treat to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks so much, John. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks to Paul LeBlanc for speaking with us today. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Caroline. And Tom. Signing off.